Mastered versions. <laughs> when I take out that buzz that's in every episode. Oh, should we turn that off? Or nah. no? No, no. It's gonna. This one's gonna have a buzz. Leave it I'm, raw. Because I'm hot, too hot to turn off the air conditioner. Too hot to handle. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Today we're talking about Injustice for All, which came out in 1979. Uh, not the Metallica album, the uh, Al Pacino film. In case you were worried that we changed into a Metallica discography podcast, um, we haven't. And many were worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Several people were messaging me. They're like, "You, you're, you're not going to switch to uh, talking about Metallica albums, are you?" And I was like, "No, don't worry. We'll never do that." Whenever I was trying to do research, the album kept coming up, and I was like, "No, it was not." What I, or it would just be stuff about the Pledge of Allegiance, and I'd be like, "I, I think I know it. Actually, <laughs> I, I, I might not know it." Be you want you want to recite it for the listeners? No. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I used to like not like I would like not say it at school. I wish that I uh, was uh, strong enough to not say the Pledge of Allegiance. It's very fucked up that they make us do that. I think at some point I was like, you're just making me pledge every day? It's really cult like, and the thing is, we're like the only country that makes people like pledge an allegiance oath of loyalty <laughs> to a flag every day as children it's very cult-like and it's very creepy and i the more you think about it the more you separate out it's like this is weird we, we shouldn't be doing this well, so i went to middle school and ninth grade in hawaii and they didn't have us do it there i mean like maybe at like something they do in the auditorium or like a football game maybe but then like each football game would also have i don't know lots of other stuff like not just like to the American flag. Like you would also sing the Hawaiian the state, state song, song and like then your school song. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like then is, when I came back, I was like, what the fuck? Is Hawaii state song better than Kansas state song? I don't know what the Kansas state song You don't know? Oh, it's Home on the Range. Oh, I don't know. That's kind of a, a hit. A hit. <laughs> I, I do not like Home on the Range. <laughs> but yeah, that's how the film opens is a bunch of children reciting the Pledge of Allegiance over and over again. It gets a little bit annoying. Well, you've also seen it like three times, and I only saw it once, so it's probably, for you, it's be like, oh god, it's the Pledge of Allegiance scene again. Which I already don't like. Yeah. As we established. I mean, it gets a little, it's repetitive, so. But I think it's supposed to be, because then it juxtaposes with, you know, this is like how we raise our children in this like idea that like we have this justice system where everything turns out right and then like the reality is that that happens very little. 
Yeah, I was surprised at how how actually relevant this movie still feels uh, in 2020, especially like the themes of sexual assault and powerful men getting away with it while innocent people get fucked over. Yeah, this movie has a, like a lot of different like stories going through it, and that was like something that I read. Uh, you know, audiences were kind of like on the fence about was that there's just like so many veins that goes down, and it's constantly like switching between like comedy and drama that's kind of i think how it stays so relevant yeah i guess you could say the only scene that to me the only scene that was really out of place was the helicopter scene because i mean it is funny but it goes on for a long time and it's just like you could take that whole scene out and it would the movie would still be the same <laughs> that scene gave me so much anxiety i mean so the film is mostly about besides the helicopter scene which Maybe you could just make a whole other movie about that judge. Yeah, the, the uh, suicidal judge who, like, <laughs> is constantly, like, pushing himself to the limit to, like, fe feel something. <laughs> yeah, he's played by Jack Warden, who is the same age in every movie I've ever seen him in, whether he was young or old. Kind of like Gene Hackman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's got one of those faces. <laughs> it's just like you've always... Yeah. He's always been 45 years old. <laughs> Even when he's 25 or 65. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And he, yeah, tries to kill himself multiple ways throughout the movie. I mean, I don't know if he's really trying. I think he's, I, I don't know. He likes to, like, edge. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's more ed edging, um, edging with, uh, edging with, day, with death. With death is kind of. Because, with Haldivine. Yeah, I mean, he's, because I don't think he actually wants to kill himself, but I think he just wants the thrill of living, and, like, I think that's part of Part of what you're supposed to take away from his character is that he's been in it for so long that the whole system is the only way that he can feel alive is by getting close to death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is somebody that you can tell has just like been in it for too long and like doesn't really care about anything anymore, but not in the same way that the other judge doesn't care about anything. Well, that's the thing. Like the other judge, he actually cares too much about like the exact like following everything to the exact point mm -hmm. and doesn't actually give a shit about the people and he's also a huge piece of shit <laughs> and, a, and a hypocrite which brings it you know kind of back to the main plot of the film which is that Al Pacino's character Arthur Kirkland is this like really like upstanding like lawyer in Baltimore and he kind of only cares about defending people who are really honest with him. Whether they're guilty or not, he just like cares about them uh, telling the truth. Cares about justice. Yeah. Justice for, for all. all. I wouldn't say that he only cares if they're honest with him. Well, I think that's true um, until he takes on the judge case in which... Well, yeah. <laughs> he's a piece of shit whether or not he's honest. But yeah. I mean, in the, in the case of Aggie is the last name of the trans character, so I figured that would be... Once easier. again, the, um, the second uh, film yeah. of, uh, of Al Pacino that has a major trans character in it, and then, uh, then Cruising's right after this. So it's like, in the 70s, either he's the trifecta of Al Pacino. Al Pacino said trans rights. Yeah, for real. <laughs> all through the late 70s, there's just all these, like, really, like, cool trans characters. I mean, I couldn't find anything about this act. But they, I think they did an amazing job. So that's how the scene or the movie starts off is that he's actually in jail with a future client. So Arthur Kirkland is in jail for the night basically for contempt of court because he 
threatened or possibly assaulted the judge who later is um, on trial for rape. And that's when they bring in um, Aggie's character, who has allegedly held up a taxi cab. Yeah, so, sorry to interrupt your point, but I did, I did, uh, it was Robert Christian, um, and he actually passed away of AIDS in 1983, um, so I think he was cis, um, Wikipedia, but I mean, Wikipedia doesn't, (laughs) doesn't say say. otherwise, (laughs) but he was in a few things, I think this was his biggest role, uh, but he was a child actor, um, before that and was in a few other films in the 70s and 80s but I I think I think the character of Aggie was what he's most known for but yeah he only he was only um like 45 when he passed away yeah 43 wow so yeah he passed away of AIDS which is you know which once we get to cruising we'll probably talk a, a lot more about too but that's that whole time period is pretty pretty yeah fucked up getting closer and closer to the 80s um, in all of these films, so and then cruising as 1980, right before the AIDS crisis. So I mean, like whenever I read the different reviews and stuff like that, um, they all talked about this character like they were just in drag, which they, they were. They're very trans. clearly, very yeah. clearly a trans. Uh, you know, she's, uh, they they never much like in Dog Day Afternoon. Um, you know, never doesn't go by any other name but ralph with the masculine name but you know know, she's always wearing a wig and like even in the courtroom and stuff outside of it it it, to me it's like rather than a suit it's like usually like floral prints and you know stuff like that which i think if the character was just in drag at the beginning whenever they're brought in that they wouldn't still like wear a wig in court and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, no, it's it is very clearly a trans character. Or at least the that, didn't know that's how we would that's how it. we would uh, that's how we would understand it today as opposed seventy nine, I assume that yeah, like I said, it's the same probably the same thing the way they talked about Elizabeth Elizabeth Evans and Dog Day Afternoon, you know. Actually surprisingly they give a lot of death, um, more than you would assume based on just the opening scene, you know. Right. It almost seems like that might be, like, a throwaway character at, at the beginning, um, because it's just somebody that's getting booked right as Pacino is getting released. And Pacino kind of speaks up for them, because the the police are being dicks, of course, and making her um, disrobe in yeah. front of all the other prisoners for and, no reason and they're putting her with the men of yeah. course where they're all like catcalling and it, yeah they're like oh let's make sure you don't have a weapon it's like you definitely already patted people down before yeah like, much yeah before it was it was point. and the whole like excuse that the cop gives when he's leaving the the jail is like oh we do they just get bored sometimes you know it's like which is once again pretty pretty fucking fucked up. <laughs> yeah, I think Pacino just is like, well, that's not my kind of party, or that's not my kind of yeah. fun, or something like that. Yeah, I... Which like, is uh, very close to, like, everything Serpico. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, like, um, I think I even made the comment to you when we were watching this, that this is uh, Serpico uh, if, for lawyers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is Serpico of the legal world. The, the director, um, this is directed by Norman Jewison, he called the film a terrifying comedy. Because everybody was like, well, what genre is this, you know? Because it, it goes yeah. back and forth, you know? Like, there's cases like Aggie's where it's like 
an armed robbery and like Pacino has to get to like a very deep place with the character to get to like honesty and like how to help them and stuff mm -hmm. and then it like immediately juxtaposes to that car crash with his like you know that his first client who's, that client who's yeah nuts he, and yeah <laughs> has like um some young woman with him who he, he's just a disappear and it's like and then Pacino is like no you can wait in my car like I will take you home but it, his client is like no just go away like doesn't yeah. even care about her so and, and that's a very like comedic character because it's somebody that's like always getting into scrapes and always needs a lawyer and mm -hmm. probably his lifeblood honestly yeah based on all the other cases he takes <laughs> yeah and he has an important role towards the end when he gives the uh, photos that basically proves that uh the judge actually did uh, did rape the woman yeah that's like the big the big crux of it is there there's a judge character who's a huge asshole who like he ha he's having issues like you know, it'd be, the, the film begins with him being in jail because he punched the, the judge out for <laughs> not uh, not granting um, an innocent man his release because the evidence was too late or whatever. So he's like one of those judges who just follows the law to the exact point to the, where it's like... It was three days late. Yeah. yeah. Which is the, the third case that's like running through the McCullough case. Mm -hmm. and, and then he gets arrested a little bit later on, on suspicion of uh, rape. And, you know, he's like very adamant to Pacino's character that he didn't do it. You know, he's like, I don't, why do they, I don't know why they expect, like, why do they think that I did it? And, you know, he has like, a, he takes a polygraph test and does all these things. The witnesses that supposedly exonerate him. And then once Pacino gets those photos, he confronts the judge about it. And the judge is like, yeah, I fucking did it. Who cares? I'm gonna get off. I arranged all the evidence. <laughs> I do think it is funny that at first the judge tried to be like, are you kink-shaming me? Because the pictures aren't necessarily, like, incriminating to, I don't know, to a full degree. It's the client that he has that's always getting into scrapes uh, seems to be friends with, like, a sex worker who has... It's funny because it was the judge and the head of the ethics committee yeah. took photos with her where they're like in like leather bondage, bond yeah, bondage photos and stuff. And at first the judge is like, well, this doesn't mean anything just because I'm into bondage. Like he tried to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, some, which, some, which yeah. true. I mean, that's, that's fair. But then he immediately is like, no, I, no, no, I, no. I, 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 I did it. it. <laughs> you can tell that Al Pacino's character has stomach problems like just the way well whenever he gets into the helicopter i don't i think i pointed this out that he like he rubs his hands across his stomach and he goes i'm not too happy about this <laughs> and i was like that's me every time i leave the house but the the look on his face whenever the judge says like no yeah i did it or, because then you still have to defend them in court and you still have attorney client privilege right he can't do anything theoretically he can't do anything about that information and you know he has a the, his relationship that's shown throughout the film. He's he's in a relationship with one of the people on the ethics committee, and he's and her and him often clash about duties as lawyers and other things. And he's talking to her about how you know how he knows that he did it, and and he's like, I can't not defend him because if I don't defend him, then I'm going to get disbarred, and this is my job. This is the only thing you know I know how to do. And she's like. Well, then you have to defend him. 
<laughs> yeah, she's very like by the book, rules are rules, and even if he has been in trouble in the past, the ethics committee is also investigating him because in the past he uh, betrayed a client's uh, yeah, he he he, he um, gave out sensitive information about a client to the police to prevent a uh, further crime. Further crime, and which of course yeah, and the police were like, we don't prevent crime. But yeah, they're using um, that's how they're blackmailing him into uh, representing the judge because they're like, well, if you don't represent him, we're going to disbar you by revealing to the ethics committee that you did this comes into play as well with his partner, which is played by Jeffrey Tambor, Jeffrey Tambor's theatrical debut. You know, he kind of sucks. He's but a he, shitty person. He did a really good job in this movie. But he's a good actor, um, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, no, he... Unfortunately, uh, yeah, God damn it. Yeah, his, his character has a, basically has a mental breakdown because a client that he got off um, who was guilty for murder. And he knew he and was he knew guilty. he was guilty, but he got him off, and he, like, took a lot of pride in that, because he's like, I'm such a good lawyer that I got off someone who was very obviously guilty. And he got guilty. him off on, like, a technicality. And then that, and then he finds out that that person murdered someone else again, and he, so basically he, like, yeah, he has a, he shaves his head, and then he, like, throw, like, he breaks down by, like, throwing plates in the hallway of the courthouse. If, <laughs> if, like, somebody that's good at making, like, gifts or, like, memes could please cut together the scene where Jeffrey Tambor is like grabbing Al Pacino by the lapels and he's like when it comes back it's gonna come back thick you know he's talking about his hair and Al Pacino's like why the fuck did you shave your head like you look insane he's like no when it comes back it'll be thick like cut that with like him in Arrested Development or something <laughs> like it, it did not come back I don't what if it never came back like because he because shaved he shaved it for, for Injustice for All <laughs> Actually, so he shaved his head too early in the filming because he thought that they were going to like film things in order. So he's actually wearing a wig for most of the film because they were like, oh, well, we have to like film, you know, these earlier scenes and you have to have hair in them, so... Did he do that because he, uh, since it was his first film, he wasn't aware that films don't film in production so. order? I think he was still <laughs> kind of learning the ropes a little bit. Which, it's funny, like, Pacino is, like, a method actor. His acting coach is in the film, uh, Lee Strasberg, who was also Hyman Roth in The Godfather Part Two. And Lee Strasberg was always about method, going method. Um, Pacino called him Grandpa throughout the filming, which maybe it was just fun to call him Grandpa anyways. It seems like he was kind of Pacino's Grandpa. But he, like, got so, like, into it that he was, like, helping, like, Jeffrey Tambor, like, look at his acting contract and stuff. Like, he was, like, looking at things through, like, a legal sense. Are you serious? <laughs> That's so funny. Like, Al Pacino thought he, like, thought he could be an actual lawyer. <laughs> like, he was like, I know a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, they did have him, like, sit in on, like, court proceedings. And the film is written by a, a hus well, then-husband and wife team. They've since split up. But uh, Barry Levinson and Valerie Curtin. Which, um, I think this was the first collaboration between Al Pacino and Barry Levinson, who he would go on to do quite a few films with later on. Much later, he does like the, you know, if you're familiar, and well, I'm sure once we get to those points, um, we'll talk about it, but he does those HB. There's a couple of like made for HBO films that Al Pacino did that Barry Levinson directed. Like, I think one of them was the um, You Don't Know Jack about. Dr. Kevorkian and the other one was either, I don't think he did Phil, the Phil Spector one, but I think he did the third one, which was about uh, Joe Paterno and the uh, sexual assault case. 
showcase that football program. So Yeah, I didn't know who Barry Levinson was, but it sounded like familiar to me. So I looked him up and he worked with Mel Brooks. He went on to direct Rain Man and win the Oscar in 1988. Which, I like that movie. I know some people are kind of iffy on it, but I, 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 I like that film. He made a, something called Bugsy, Wag the Dog with De Niro and Hoffman, and then he was an unaccredited writer of Chitsy. He produced Donnie Brasco. Which is another film that we will get to at some point <laughs> later on. He went on to work with uh, Pacino again in 2014 in a movie called The Humbling. Which I looked up on Wikipedia, and the genre of this film made me laugh out loud. An erotic comedy drama. <laughs> An erotic comedy drama. So just like, just let's just throw like all three film genres together, and you know what? You know, we'll make it a horror film as well. Oh <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be a horror film. It came out in 2014, what is the, uh, and it's an erotic comedy with Al Pacino. <laughs> is it, was it critically well-received? <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of this film. Oh, no. It wasn't? <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know. I just saw the box office oh. come out. So, reception, it got a 52% on Rotten Tomatoes. So, like, so it could go either way. <laughs> and then on Metacritic, if that means more to you, it got 59 out of 100. So, so not the greatest reviews. Mixed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Barry Levinson had a grand career. His wife and him made a few other films together, but they ultimately got a divorce in the in the 80s. But he worked with uh, Dustin Hoffman a lot, which Dustin Hoffman kind of has to do with this film a little bit because Pacino almost took the role in Kramer vs. Kramer, but he turned it down to be in Injustice for All and then lost the Oscar to Dustin Hoffman for Kramer vs. Kramer, which we've kind of talked about how they've always been rivals yeah so um, and this is actually the last yep the last time Pacino was nominated for like a decade <sighs> until um until Dick Tracy <laughs> I mean I watched Kramer versus Kramer today and like I think he Pacino would have done a better job but I don't think that Dustin Hoffman would have done a better job in Injustice for All yeah I think I mean I haven't seen Kramer versus Kramer but I have a hard time picturing Dustin Hoffman in Pacino's role and like giving as much because Dustin Hoffman to me most of the films that I've seen him in he's not really an actor who does a good job with portraying an empathetic character you know like I don't think mm -hmm. I don't see him as that type of actor and Al Pacino is very emotive very expressive like you know, you, you get a lot of... You can see Al Pacino as a caring person, and I have a hard time seeing Dustin Hoffman, like, care as much as Al Pacino's... <laughs> so, puts, pulls it off. Kramer's like an asshole in the movie, <laughs> but, like, I think I think you still kind of like him. Well, it's... I, I won't make this about Kramer versus Kramer, but I'll, like, get to the relevant parts. You know, I think the film is interesting in that, like, it's about somebody that wasn't previously involved in their child's life very much. He was kind of, like, the secondary parent. At the beginning of Kramer versus Kramer, he says bringing home the bacon about six times. Like, he won't stop fucking talking about how he brings home the bacon. But the film is about his wife is leaving him, like, and not taking the kids. Like, she's like, I'm leaving both of you. And, like, I have to go do my own thing. And so he's kind of, like, learning how to be a dad all over again in this, like, new way of being the only parent. So he's, 
at first it's very frustrating because he has like very little patience and he doesn't know how to like do French toast and some really great scenes where like he like comes around to it very well. So like there's a scene where he like really yells at his kid. Like his kid is like, I hate you! And he's like, I hate you back you little shit! And it's like, oh my god, like you can't say that to your, like, the kid's like eight or something. And then like later you get to see him like really becoming like a great parent and like having the patience where like he can tell his kid needs attention. He just like starts telling his kid like all this stuff that how it was in the 40s versus like growing up in the 70s and it's like you can tell that he like finally understands and like how to like love a child and stuff but I think the only way that they could get there is by showing like how little he knew to begin with. So I think he does a good job of being empathetic in the role but like I think Pacino. Pacino's just a very likable person in a way um, even in, like, films where he's portraying someone who is, like, very not a, like, like, even the Godfather films where he's, like, no emotion, like, never shows, like, any emotion, period, you know, is very cold and calculating. He still has this kind of likableness to him. And I always think any film that I, except for, like, Rain Man, where he's, like, you know, obviously he's playing a character who, who is, you know, has autism, so he's not, you know, he's, it's not what he normally does, but, like, in The Graduate, you know, I just think of him as an asshole, and... <laughs> I see how him and Pacino are often, like, compared because they're, like, right around the same height. They're, like, both considered, like, an everyman, like, not the most dashing, attractive man, but still very a handsome person. Obviously, like, Dustin Hoffman, you know, one is a... a amazing actor i'm not saying he's a bad actor right. i'm just saying he, like, won, he won the fucking yeah oscar he won the oscar for kramer for kramer but I'm, I'm just saying that like for a role like this where very clearly you have to show that you have a deep a deep caring for people you know with the like with the scene in the parking garage where al pacino is uh you know destroying his friend's car for fucking up the case which leads yeah it leads to Aggie's um, yeah so basically uh, um, Pacino because uh, because of Jeffrey Tambor's character's freak out has to go to the hospital with him and he can't sit in a, for this very like prefunctionary like probationary hearing for Aggie and like Pacino ha had made the corrections necessary um, on the work release that would have pretty pretty much exonerated Aggie. First time offender, yeah. like, had never been in trouble, and what, it wasn't like a violent, like a Yeah, it, like, he gives it to his, his, one of his friends and asks him to cover for him and to give the, make sure to give that to the judge so that Aggie does not have to go to prison, because that's like the one thing Aggie's like, I cannot go to prison, I will not survive um, in prison. And this guy, you know, he's late for the appointment. He does not hand. He does not hand. And the uh, judge is like, "This isn't satisfactory. Do I have everything that I need?" And he still is like, "Yeah." Yeah, it's it's all there, and you can tell he really does not can't give a shit about this case at all. And and the judge is like, "Nope. Well, sorry, you're going to like, you're going to, to jail. You know, like." And then he tries to hand it in like after the gavel's been. Smashed. He's like, he's like. There, the judge is like, I can't do that. It's done now. Like, you yeah. know. Whether something is three days late, as in Pacino's case with McCullough, mm. I, maybe I should say Kirkland's case or whatever yeah. his character's name. I, I'm so bad. Like, <laughs> he's still Pacino to me. I know. Like, I, I, you know, like I had to ask. Like, I'm really bad with character names in films, and and so that's. I just, I use actors' names when I probably should be <laughs> using the characters' names. But <laughs> Pacino's kind of like the only like yeah. actor that did a lot of things after this. Yeah, Pacino and Jeffrey Tambor 
and Craig T. Nelson, who played Coach on the sitcom Coach. Oh, right. He's, <laughs> he was the prosecutor in this. <laughs> oh, I wondered what I knew that dude from. Yeah, I just knew him from Coach, <laughs> which I've only maybe seen like half of an episode of. But I... They're both like courtroom dramas in a way. Um, Kramer vs. Kramer takes place a lot more outside of the courtroom. Like, I mean, it's kind of like, comp I mean, comparing very different things because like I think like Kramer versus Kramer is like a very like relatable thing in that like it's about family dynamics and families breaking apart and like their children and stuff but Injustice for All is like so much broader and like more about like humanity and like justice yeah. and shit so it's like it's, it's, it's kind of hard to compare because they're both really relatable things. Yeah I mean they're both what you would call issues films or whatever <laughs> they're tackling like specific issues in American life you know Kramer versus Kramer, uh, seen as like the landmark divorce film for the '70s, and you know it was coming at a time when you would were seeing a lot more um, like the divorce rates were like all like in the news everywhere. Like, oh, America's divorce rate is going through the roof. And it's, like, <laughs> it's crazy. We've seen that in like kind of a few of these. Like yeah. um, in the Godfather Part Two, he has this conversation with Mama Corleone where he's like you know, I'm worried about things, and she's like, you can never lose your family, and he's like, mom, things are changing, like, you can lose your family, like, you know, women are getting more independent, you can leave your husband and, like, get a job, and, like, it, you don't have to be entirely dependent, so, like, as women got more agency, it's like, yeah, you can fucking leave that bastard, and he yeah. knew that he was that bastard that could be left. Yeah. Parents' generation kind of didn't have that. Yeah, his parents' generation was, you're married, you're married, it doesn't matter, it whether or not you love the person doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, my parents, like, straight up don't believe in divorce. Yeah. Which is, I mean, they got married in the 70s, so I don't really understand. Well, your parent, your, I mean, your dad's a pastor. And so. the 18th The visit that I watched seven of these Pacino films with my dad, he refused to watch Queer Eye, refused to watch the second half of Dog Day Afternoon, but after Injustice for All, he was like, oh, you like that movie? Do you want to watch Law Abiding Citizen? I did want to say, though, I thought it was weird that your dad did not want to finish Dog Day Afternoon, but this film starts with a trans character, and Aggie is in the rest of the film, and Pacino is, you know, I mean, is, is as much as an ally. As you could be in, as a lawyer, I guess. I don't know. He's He obviously cares about this person. And, um, Whether or not he really understands, yeah, he cares. Because, yeah. like, I mean, he he cares enough that he makes it a, that like he cares whether or not Aggie is wearing, you know, her wig. Right. He tells so. the other lawyer, "Don't make them take their wig off because it makes them happy." Yeah. And the other lawyer's like, "Whatever." And I think the judge still does it, which no, the judge like that's the thing, like, and that's where you see that Aggie is like, "Well, I like I can't be who I am anymore because I'm going to jail now." Because the judge forces her to take right. the wig off. And he's like, take that wig off when, you know... And you can just see it's, like, crushed. Yeah, her, like, entire being is just destroyed. So the, the point about Kramer versus Kramer that I... Uh, before I forget, is that... Um, well, I think it's, like, famously known, at least now, since, like, Me Too stuff. Meryl Streep came out and said that Dustin Hoffman slapped her before filming one of the scenes for Kramer vs. Kramer because he wanted to, like, you know, elicit a certain response from her, which is that she was fucking mad at him for slapping her. That came out in her acting, which 
maybe he could have just trusted her to be a good actress. Oh my god, on a side before, I don't mean to cut you off, but that <laughs> reminded me of an anecdote I'd always heard about Dustin Hoffman, which I believe, um, I may have got, may get the uh, film messed up on this part, but I think it was the film Marathon Man that he was working on with Laurence Olivier, and he had been like staying up for like 24 hours. He hadn't slept at all. He wanted to like be as disheveled as possible, and he was talking to Laurence Olivier about it about how he's like, ah, yeah, I haven't slept at all, you know, you know, I'm just really trying to get, do meth, like, get into the method of acting here. And Lord's literally just kind of looked at him, he was like, you know, you could just try acting. And <laughs> walked away. God. Yeah. Well, he did a bunch of other fucked up shit, too, besides just slapping Meryl Streep. Like, he did, like, psychological shit to her. I read an article, um, if, if anyone wants to... It's, it's very long. It's a Vanity Fair article called How Meryl Streep Battled Dustin Hoffman Retooled Her, Ro her Role and Won Her First Oscar. So whenever they were filming Kramer vs. Kramer, it was just after John Cazale died. So she was still grieving and, I mean, I think people like to like sweep it under the rug or something that like what John Cazale meant to her because she like started seeing somebody kind of like during her grieving process, but like a lot of people and also like when you're with someone a long time while they're sick it might be nice I don't think that means that like she didn't love John Cazale but anyways so she was still grieving his death because he he passed away in 77 I believe and so he slapped her he also improvised a lot of lines outside the elevator scene he started taunting Meryl about John Cazale jabbing her with remarks about his cancer and his death he was goading her and provoking her fish off recalled using stuff that he knew about her personal life and about John to get the response that he thought she should be giving in the performance. Meryl Fishoff said went absolutely white. She had done her work and thought through her part and if Dustin wanted, if he wanted to use method techniques like emotional recall he should use them on herself not her. Um, so basically after they wrapped she just like left the studio in a rage. But he like also with Justin Henry who was in on cinema who was eight years old during the filming of Kramer vs. Kramer. The kid has to cry in like you know many scenes of the film. The, the kid does a great like awesome job. I've never seen a kid act like that. Um, he, I think he got nominated for best supporting actor but like maybe now I know that it's because Dustin Hoffman was like fucking with him the whole time in like different scenes like there's a scene where he like gets hurt and the kid is supposed to be like really losing his mind and Dustin Hoffman was yeah Film families aren't forever. You, you know, Terry over there who works the camera, after this, you might never see him again. Like, he was just, like, psychologically, like, manipulating everyone. What a piece of fucking shit. I mean, I I'm know. sorry. Dustin Hoffman's such a fucking asshole. <laughs> so, it's like, yeah. Al Pacino all the way. Like, he should have won the Oscar. As far as I know, and everything that we've studied so far, I can honestly say that Al Pacino has not psychologically tortured an eight-year-old to get a performance. <laughs> Why wasn't... So the director had said that whenever Dustin slapped Meryl, he was like, well, the, the movie's done. Like, he... Like, it wasn't something that, like, other people on the set were, like, cool with or something. So I don't understand why nobody intervened. Well, because Dustin Hoffman is, like, the biggest star in the film. That's at that point. Like, yeah. I mean, at that... The film is fucked up, uh, the industry. Because if you have enough, like, power or whatever, you basically can do shit like that and get away with it. Because they were like, well, Dustin Hoff without Dustin Hoffman, there is no film. So we have to just 
if he's gonna fucking slap Meryl Streep, I guess we're just gonna have to go with it. <laughs> well, see, Pacino, I think he had similar power, but he used it for good instead of evil. You know, he'd be like, rewrite that script, or like, can we well, hire I mean, my friend? Rewriting the script, that's a little bit of a dick move. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but that, I mean, that's that's not on the same Compared level. to being like, your boyfriend's dead. Yeah, that like that, or... Yeah, yeah, like Al Pacino would get his friends hired <laughs> in film. Poor Justin Henry, like, I hope he's doing okay. <laughs> well, you know, he was in Kramer versus Kramer 2, so. Yeah, he went on to, you know, make a sequel with Tim and Eric. <laughs> well, you know, we should probably talk about the final scene, the big final scene of the film that's like the most famous part of the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, uh, so I recently watched, um, just before I, like, lose this train of thought, um, I watched Author Author, which I think came out in 1982. 81, 82. And I think that that was Pacino's attempt to do a Kramer versus Kramer. Well, I'm interested to see that now. It's got uh, like very similar themes. We will of... be getting to that in like two episodes. Like, actually, yeah, there's this one, and then we'll do Cruising, and then it'll be Author Author. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like the, it's a very similar storyline of husband who's left with the kids figuring that out and you know sometimes women have to go find themselves too like that sort of thing mm -hmm. so kind of interesting and i wonder if he was like i could i could have done it <laughs> so so yeah the final scene filmed in one take yeah it's an amazing scene uh, it has that line that everybody misquotes you know you're out of order you're out of order everybody always says this whole court's out of order which is not the actual Line. This whole trial. <laughs> but I uh, before. And then you can correct your friends. There you go. Yeah. People love that. Yeah. They, yeah. Be, everybody loves someone who like just comes in and is like, actually, guys, this actually. is well, this is what the real thing is. Completely unprompted. But I did not know that that's where this line came from before watching this. I'm glad I do. I think. Pacino earned his entire, like, he could have gotten the Oscar nom just based off the last ten minutes of the film. That, I mean, it's like a monologue that I'm surprised I never saw kids do in high school. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like in theater class or something. It's like, it take, it has like, it, it's long, so like, it definitely would fulfill, like, when people are like, oh, you gotta give a five-minute monologue to get into this play or yeah. whatever, and you're like, ah! I'm gonna do Injustice for all. <laughs> So basically the crux of that whole thing is that he is giving his opening statements at the trial of the judge that he hates, and basically he just throws his whole career away by blatantly being like, oh yeah, the judge did it, he told me, he's, you know, like, and, which would cause a mistrial in real life, and I'm sure it did I think that's why too. the prosecutor is so upset. Yeah. Because he knows that, like... Because, like, well, now the prosecutor's like, well, now I, this is what's going to be my star case that I would make my whole... Which Pacino even points out in, in the speech. He's like, right. the prosecutor doesn't actually care about justice. He just cares about winning. That's all he cares about. Everybody cares about winning and losing. Plea deal, yeah. Right. yeah no. And Pacino's point is that life isn't... Human life isn't worth winning or losing over. It's, like, more important than that. And, you know, he's trying to illustrate that, like, the whole justice system, they don't actually care about the people's whose lives are at stake. Well, at this point, his character kind of has nothing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he has a girlfriend still, but like, all he has his is, cases that yeah. he cared about, like Aggie's dead because after because of the fuck up of his friend. Within and, you know just a few hours of being 
in prison, and, and then Makoa. Which the only reason that he really, I think, was able to, to rectify like his conscience with taking the uh, judge case was that, oh, well, I'll be able to get Makoa out, at least. Right, and Makoa's character, I don't think we've talked very much about that whole storyline. Yeah. Makoa is somebody who was pulled over for a broken taillight, has the same name as somebody that was wanted, and gets booked as that person basically like their lawyer makes like a deal with somebody to get him out just on like time server but then like that person that they made a deal with isn't there and so he signs a deal that like books him a, to two years in prison so at this point his client has been in prison for oh, a year yeah. and a half and it wasn't it wasn't just be, it wasn't just because of the taillight somebody in the prison had like planted a knife in his right and then it cell. gets yeah, and that's what spirals added, it out yeah right and then it was, you know, this judge that everybody wants Arthur Kirkland to represent who turned, or, you know, still charges McCullough even though Kirkland can prove that he's innocent and all of these, th of all of these things um, because he turned in the proof three days late or whatever. Yeah, and, so. and before, right, before, right before he finds out that he was arrested for rape, he tries talking to him one more time and... And the judge is basically like, I don't give a damn about these about this person. Like, basically, he's like, I don't, he's like, I don't give a shit that he's innocent or not. Yeah. Yeah, the phrase, like, small potatoes is used by a few different lawyers. Like, they don't really care about, like, cases, like, public defender type cases, uh, which McCulley doesn't seem like he could really afford that great of a lawyer. Yeah. Which is my, might be why he has Arthur Kirkland, who goes into court smelling like piss because he spends the night in jail sometimes. I, I don't know. I, I feel like the film like got really like critiqued for walking the line between comedy and drama, but that's what I loved about it. I never thought it would, like, to me, I never, outside, like, I guess, like I said, outside of the, the helicopter ride scene, everything, it always felt like it was firmly, like, even the com comedic moments stayed firmly in, like, the dramatic like reality territory like nothing ever felt that far-fetched it's me. all like sarcastic yeah it's so, like it's not like they're they're not making a mockery of the people who are you know getting fucked over by the legal system i mean even the title sarcastic yeah mccullough that whole thing comes to a climax because obviously prison fucking sucks all of these characters that we've seen throughout these films would rather die than go to prison mccullough has been in prison for a year and a half as just a dude off the street and he's raped and, and you know awful things happen so he at one point has gotten a gun off a of guard and it like pacino's the only person that can talk to him and he's like basically like surrounded and i think they did such a good job of showing you know what prison can do to like person like it's not it's not for rehabilitating people but because it's like there to just like further fuck people up and like guards like turn blind eyes like I don't know. yeah well i mean the judge even says that when he's swimming and and Pacino, and Pacino's character yeah. goes to like basically ask one more time like what's the status on the mccullough thing and he's like and the judge just goes on a big rant about how like Prison should not be for re rehabilitation. You know, these people, they deserve to be punished to the full extent of the law or whatever. He says something about, like, let's hang, you know, one, like, child molester or something. He's like, then you'll see or whatever. And it's like, so such an interesting like, thing for a guilty man to say. Right, well, that's the thing. He does, he thinks that he's above the law. He doesn't see himself on the same level as the people that he's, like, prosecuting or putting in jail because to him he's this much like a lot of powerful men in society like he believes that he deserves 
to do whatever he wants to do <laughs> and get away with it. You know, because like, even at the end when they're in trial, you know, and the victim is there, he like turns. Makes that joke. Yeah, he's like, man, I'd like to see her again. And it's like, you just want him to, you want him to die at that point. <laughs> that, I mean, like, I wonder, I, I feel like, you know, going into court, like, Pacino still doesn't really know, like, what he's going to do. I think, yeah, I think, I think that moment he makes, it. yeah, he, it breaks, I think he makes the decision while he's talking, though, because he, he, he goes through the pre-functionary stuff, like, he's like, he took a polygraph, and the, I think, I have I, witnesses. I, I think at that point, when the judge does the first, like, you know, objection stuff, that's the point where, where he switches in his, in his head, where he's like, you know what, fuck this, fuck this whole process. And he, like, gets that one single tear yeah. that goes down his face. <laughs> oh, yeah, he did that all in one take, which is, it's, it's such a good scene. You can find it on YouTube, maybe we'll, like, post it to the Twitter or something, like, if you don't want to watch the entire movie, if you don't want to watch a bunch of beautiful characters all die, because almost everybody dies in this, <laughs> another one of those, um, because McCullough, Chino does talk him down, but it's just the police. Well, yeah, he starts doing police things. He starts freaking out again, stands up, and then the police shoot him, as police do. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I whenever I like listen to the Serpico recording again, I realize that we didn't quote the thing that I quoted. Mo I quote most about Serpico, which is like, "You shot without looking. You shot without a fucking brain in your head." <laughs> uh, maybe I quoted it too much in life, and then I was like, "Oh, I said that on the podcast already." But in this film, he there's the whenever Jeffrey Tambor's character is having his mental breakdown in the courtroom and the police come, like, they start pulling their guns out of the holster, and he's like, whoa, 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 like, he doesn't have a gun. He's like, well, what, what does he have? And he's like, he has plates. <laughs> and, like, they were going to go in there, like, and shoot him, basically. Yeah, and just because he's throwing plates. Like. Once again, this is the third film that I feel that Al Pacino's done that really, like, paints the police in a bad light, which I'm like, hell I yeah. I said trans rights and fuck the police, like, all, all through all of his films, <laughs> even where he is a police officer. Yeah, not a lot of copaganda so far in Al Pacino's filmography. <laughs> no. <laughs> which we touched on that he has, like, a little bit of a criminal past himself. Yeah, maybe that's why he feels more willing to take on these films. <laughs> I mean... I wonder how much of like a hoodlum he really was or I mean he said that the gun was a prop that him and his friends were riding around with you know when they were in ski masks and stuff said it was he could have just been preparing for a role sure <laughs> <laughs> there's not much like police in the film it's more you know the legal but when side. they but when they are shown like you know you're throwing prison like the correctional officers in there too like when they anytime they are shown they're they're not shown in the best light either. And then the beginning cops, obviously, we see that they're just dicks who yeah, like, they just get bored sometimes and yeah. have to like completely humiliate people. Yeah, like that. And then you have the yeah the plate scene and the, yeah. the people and when they shoot McCullough. it's like yeah, like I said, it's the whole entire justice system is shown to be shitty in this film. It actually reminds me, um, and this is a very obscure film that I watched and when I took the, a contemporary Japanese film class at film school, we were shown this movie called um, I Just Didn't Do It, which takes, it's, it's, it's all about how fucked up the Japanese legal system is, but it's about this one, this guy gets, and you're never quite sure if he it, did it or not, but he's never really, get, like, like in, in the Japanese legal system, it's like you're presumed guilty. It's very rare to get 
proven innocent. <laughs> um, and it, sh it shows the whole process. But he's like, he's accused of uh, feeling up a woman on the subway system, which is like, yeah, it is a real problem in Japan, like, of men, like, groping women on, like, crowded subways. But he's accused of that. And, like, you know, you go through the entire, like, how the courts are just like, yep, you're guilty. You know, prosecutors are basically have very powerful, like, have a lot of powerful political capital, and, like, in Japan, it's like, you know, you're supposed to, at least the way, the way that I remember it is that, you know, Japan prides itself its high conviction rate. <laughs> it prides itself. Yeah. Um, so, and that's, a, and so like I said, I, I was reminded of that film a lot, watching it. Um, yeah, like, the prosecutors have all the money, and, like, the defense attorneys, um, the defense attorney has like a really small office and like just you know and he's and, and he's obviously like shown to like believe in justice and things and like actually like hearing his clients out but you know but the prosecutors are the ones that have all the political power so I don't know and I'm sure like that's the film that I was reminded of when I was watching Injustice for All so I would recommend Not Law Abiding Citizen Not Law Abiding Citizen so I don't know if you can track that well I don't know how hard it is to find in the US but if you can track that I think it, the, the American title is I, I just didn't do it I found this really good quote from Barry Levinson who was one of the co-writers because they like sat in on so many court cases like for mm -hmm. research and by the way I forgot to say Arthur Kirkland was initially uh character in a different script that he was writing he was just like a minor character and then him and his wife were like we really like this guy and so they just scrapped that other script and started writing a story just about Arthur Kirk. Barry Levinson said of researching the film the first thing that strikes you is not to trust your impressions we'd see someone and say gee he looks like a nice guy then discover that he butchered his whole neighborhood the second reaction is that truth and justice aren't necessarily the same Every trial is a unique personal drama with different motivations, different circumstances, yet we want the law, the verdict, to be absolute. I think that sums up, sums up the flaws in the system pretty well. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the, the scenes between Pacino and Craig T. Nelson are like so good about that, where you're fighting each other all quietly. Yeah, and while like, another, <laughs> while it, I get, I, yeah, I, I guess, like I said, I can see how, like, uh, why he described it as, uh, like, as a comedy in certain in certain sense because yeah like they are having this like intense argument while a completely different trial is going on they're like above yeah, yeah. the balcony and they're just like telling each other like to fuck off all, like but they're whispering yeah and they're like it's so it's so good Pacino's problem with him basically is that he's just like willing to take like plea deals which that's my one of my favorite lines in the final monologue where he's like let's make a deal like as they're yeah. like, dragging him out of the courtroom yeah which it that is why my dad wanted me to watch law that one detail just that one line because in law abiding citizen the reason gerard butler's character is so upset with his lawyer is because he offered the people that murdered his wife and children uh, plea deals and i was like that's why I watched this fucking movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, basically just that, you know, things aren't always like exactly fair. Norman Jewison, who is the director, he, uh, he said he loved the script because a sense of theater exists in the court of law. Like you have to like prepare like your statement 
and it's like kind of the act, you know. Yeah. You're I'll, pretending to have never discussed these things before with some people. Like it's in, I mean, like in other countries, they wear wigs and like a, like you know like robes and stuff. It's it's funny that we put on this whole show. Yeah, and it's and I think that was Kirkland's point about it. He was like, "This is all show." Like when during his like, "This is all show. This is not. This is a bunch of bullshit, basically." Yeah. <laughs> I did want to say something about Norman Jewison, though, uh, that I thought was interesting, because I know, I think we mentioned this before, I can't remember if I've talked about this before, but the year that Al Pacino won for Best Actor for Scent of a Woman um, was the year that Denzel Washington was up for Best Actor for Malcolm X, and the original director attached to Malcolm X was Norman Jewison, <laughs> which, in, which elicited a huge backlash. Like, there were tons of protests. Like, lots of people were like, you cannot have a white man direct a movie about Malcolm X. And so eventually he stepped away and Spike Lee took over, but... Little, <laughs> little known director Spike Lee. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. But, which Norman, Norman says that, like, yeah, I still, I, like, Norman says he didn't step away because of the protests. He said, he said that he just couldn't get a handle for the script, but... I mean, would it be so bad that you stepped away because people asked you to? Yeah. <laughs> Other, uh, like, notable people, uh, this was the final role of Sam Levine, not to be confused with S-A-M-M Sam Levine from Freaks and Geeks. Uh, Sam Levine, of, he was, like, legendary stage actor who was in, like, Guys and Dolls, but he plays Grandpa's best friend. Oh, uh, yeah, I was going to ask if that's who if that's who that was. <laughs> I looked up a picture of him during, you know, the height of him being in Broadway, and he was so handsome. He was really good in this. I, like, the few times, like, he's only in it a couple scenes, but, like, he really, yeah, not like, when, when he, when he's, like, sitting on the steps with, uh, with Grandpa, and they're, like, <laughs> I can't eat on my knees. <laughs> yeah, I know. And he's, like, he's, like, I bet you they snuck yams in here, because yeah. <laughs> he won't fucking, yeah. like, let it go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love the, all the, other characters besides Arthur Kirkland, they just kind of like pop in here and there. Yeah. But I really like how they weave it all together. You know, he's a very like lovable character. Like you know, he like really loves his grandpa. Like his parents are dicks and yeah. not in the picture, but he was raised by this wonderful man and loves him and wants to visit him every week. And that was another thing that I think caused him to just basically be like, "Fuck this whole system," because. He, his yeah, his his meetings with his grandpa was his grandpa has dementia, and that was like that. His meetings with uh, Kirkland every week was able to keep him more grasped with his sense of time. And when he didn't visit for three weeks, he basically like regressed like hardcore and like didn't like and thought he was in the coat because like his whole thing was he he still thinks that um, that he's in law, law school. school. Um, but by the time that um, that he misses those three weeks, he thinks that he's in the Coast Guard <laughs> at that point. Yeah, and the best friend who's played by Sam Levine is like, well, you messed him up, like, you haven't been here. But it seems that he, maybe the character, maybe Arthur Kirkland knows that he, like, dives too deeply into his work anyways because he's lost a, a wife and his children, you know, Previously, before. yeah. Yeah, this is another divorced character who yeah has lost people so and he's dating somebody on the ethics committee which we haven't talked about her character yeah her character mostly um exists to uh serve as a counterpoint to his character <laughs> yeah they argue a lot but i really love that scene where they're like they're arguing and he goes i'm, I'm not too sure if i like you all the time and she's like yeah and then they're like oh you know just keep a little 
tension between us and we'll have no problems. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and they, they only fight about work. So, yeah. I don't know, maybe they're right. And <laughs> I can't imagine two lawyers being happy together, not yelling. It's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> Um, yeah, one other one other thing that I wanted to mention was the only thing that I think really dates this film is the score, because it's very 70s. Disco. It's like super f disco funky. I don't think it matches the tone of the film at all. <laughs> well, you know, like we've talked about the, the final scene, you know, where he find, you know, he says, fuck it, I'm gonna get disbarred, like, fuck this career, like, it's all about honesty, which is what his, every time he goes back to see his grandpa, mm -hmm. like, and they talk about whether he's in law school or if he's a lawyer, his grandpa seems to always be like, as long as you're honest, you know? And he, he says that he did it, and that, like, he's gonna be the one to get him, and all that, so he, then he, like, goes out, and the final scene is him, like, collapsing on the steps, of the of the courthouse and then Jeffrey Tambor you know does this tip of the cap but with his wig yeah and then it like freeze frames and then it's like it like it's it's such a strange fucking like ending because it breaks the fourth wall it see it's like a funny it's a funny scene but it's like he just was yelling about rape <laughs> yeah, that's the second film that I feel like the ending just comes out of nowhere because Scarecrow's ending just comes out of nowhere too. Because yeah. I feel like it's like, he, you know, Gene Hackman's character finds the dollar in his shoe and it's, <laughs> it's, it's done! <laughs> and it's like, he sits on the courthouse, it's like Jeffrey Tabor's character is back. Haha, ha, funny joke about, like, wearing a wig now. Which actually, though, I was thinking, which I, I thought this was the point that you were going to go with, though, is that, you know, the honesty thing is that, like, he was honest, he's done with it now. Jeffrey Tambor isn't honest about his hair, so, but he's, so he's right, but he's right, right. back in it. So yeah. it's like... That's an interesting way to look at it, is that the hair as, like, representing honesty. I thought it was representing his sanity. <laughs> <laughs> because he, and then maybe those things are aligned, because yeah. obviously he was starting to lose it after the repercussions of not being like an honest lawyer came about. So I don't yeah. know, maybe we're both right. Uh, <laughs> but I thought it was him being like, I'm kind of just pretending to be okay. Because yeah, which, fucking, like, but that's what I, but that's what I'm saying though. It's like, it, yeah, it goes along with the honest, with the honesty thing. Yeah. It's like, he's it's not hard. being honest with himself. <laughs> it would be hard to be a lawyer. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think would, I would only be a defense lawyer. I wouldn't want to be a, any lawyer. <laughs> or maybe I'd try and get people that were wrongfully imprisoned out. But That's... then that could carry some guilt too, because what if you got somebody exonerated and then you were wrong? But at the same time though, if you're like me and you believe that like prisons should be abolished really in any way. should be in prison. So then it, then, it, then it becomes like there has to be an alternative, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but anyways, that's the, that's the nature of our fucked up legal system, which most people are well aware of, and this movie's about. I think that's a good note to end on, unless you have anything more you'd like to add about this. Um, what did you say was next? Cruising is next. Cruising, And right. it's our next episode, and we should have a guest on. I don't want to spoil it just yet, and if that ends up not happening. I'm sure Callie will cut this entire part out. <laughs> but um, but yes, we should we should be having a guest hopefully. And after that, it's author off. So which we which Callie brought up a little bit um, already so as, a, as a teaser. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every Tuesday we'll release an episode, and we're gonna work on setting up a Patreon. As yeah, well. we'll have some 
perk. What's your at on Twitter? Mine's at CaliBud, uh, K-A-L-I-E-B-U-D. And I am at Static Blue Bat. And you can also follow the Pacino Pod at Pacino underscore pod. And you can find us on SoundCloud at Pacino Pod and on Spotify and Apple under Pacino Pop. <laughs> I like that. Maybe we could like pretend that we did that on purpose to be like talking about Pacino and pop culture, you know? Yeah, you know what? That's 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 why I did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's was, yeah. That, that was the reason. That was <laughs> a good choice. Thank you. I went to day school. I went to night school too. There's something funny going on.